Dons fans, and welcome to Dreamtime at the G edition of Don the Stat. The Dons teased us for a half at the Gabba last Saturday night. Our halftime hopes were deflated in the second half as the Lions ran over the top of us by 45 points. It leaves us at four and five after nine games and 10th on the ladder. The challenges keep coming with a resurgent Richmond ahead of us on Saturday night. I'm Jonathan Walsh, and to chat through it all, I'm joined by my co-host, Ian Hume. Yumi, how's things, mate? Uh, look, I'm doing really well. Uh, just getting excited for another great event in Dreamtime at the G. I know results haven't gone our way in the past decade, but still an amazing thing to be involved in. And the pre-match build-up always gives me chills. How about yourself? Yeah, I'm looking forward to it too, Matt. I've missed the last three. Obviously, we had two spent in lockdown. And then I'm pretty sure uh, this one last year fell when I had COVID myself. So, uh, yeah, it didn't, didn't get there. But, uh, yeah, I'm doing well, mate. It's uh, been busy at work this week, so I've been relatively quiet by my normal standards on Twitter. Uh, I only watched the replay the once and uh, and haven't really uh, immersed myself too much in footy talk. But, yeah, obviously looking forward to getting to the G on Saturday night and seeing how we go against the Tigers. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, before we get into looking at the Brisbane game, I just want to thank everyone for their response to bonus episode nine, which was my interview with Philip Crooks about his experiences commentating the under-18 competition for over a decade. I really enjoyed listening to what he had to say and his stories about players that have, have gone on to do great things, both for the Bombers and across the AFL in general. And also want to thank our new patron, uh, Richard Horvath. Yeah, it was a great interview, mate. You did a really good job and uh, it's been really enjoyable to, I think it's really opened my eyes that, you know, there's so many Essen fans out there with so many wonderful stories and footy clubs that even at the elite level are much more than just the players we see on the ground. They're the the coaches and the support staff and, and they're also the fans in the stands. So yeah, if you haven't checked it out yet, I, I encourage everyone to go and give it a listen. Absolutely. Well, look, let's have a quick look at the Brisbane game. You know, a match most Essendon fans went into giving themselves a little chance. And then, as you said, hopes were raised at half time. And then Brisbane sort of pushed on the accelerator there and, and took the game away in the second half. Uh, as always, we'll go through what we thought might happen. And then we're actually going to go into a bit of a broader look about where Essendon is currently at. Because there were a few things that were exemplified by that game that I think we can explain. Look, let's start our first goal was to nullify Brisbane's stoppage clearance dominance. We identified pre-game that they were the number one clearance differential side from the stoppage uh, and they scored quite heavily from that. And, you know, I, something I checked at half time and Essendon were ahead 16-12. And then I checked again at three-quarter time and Essendon were ahead 21-14. So really outstanding performance against the best stoppage clearance side in the competition, especially considering Essendon's history in that area where it hasn't been uh, an area of strength uh, Brisbane did end up winning the stoppages in the final quarter, eight to one. Meaning it did end at twenty-two all. But given that Brisbane typically are five plus up on their opponents, that's still a good result just in that area. But despite that, though, Brisbane still generated more scores from their stoppages. They kicked three-two to Essendon's one-three. Now, part of that probably does come down to the fact that the majority of the game was played in Brisbane's forward half. Uh, so when they won stoppage, they were more likely to be in a dangerous area than when Essendon won the ball from stoppage. So more likely to kick a, kick a score from there. Still, though, really encouraging that we could match one of the, the top sides in one of those key areas. Did you notice anything particular at stoppage that the Bombers were doing differently? Yeah, I don't think there was a whole lot different. We got Durham back from the week before and he's he sort of slots back into that sort of a bit more of a defensive role at stoppage and and has done a good job there throughout the year. And then Setterfield went back into the midfield. Um, 
So that, you know, th- that obviously gave us a little bit more side heat. Asias, he'd been sort of playing in other roles over the previous couple of weeks. And then Zach Merritt, I thought, looked to be playing a bit more of an inside role. I don't know whether that was by design or or just the situation required it. And, and he felt as, as Skipper, he needed to go and get his hands a bit more dirty. I, I don't think it's a, a sustainable option. I think we ultimately want Zach getting more of the ball on the outside and using his foot skills and, and his ability to kick and hit kicks on angles, but I think he just did what he he thought he needed to do to try and help us in a part of the game we'd been getting beaten up. Yeah. Well, look, that sort of leads into the next one, which was to take risks with ball in hand and attempt to get them on the outside, really try and make use of handball. Uh, it was something we were unable to get going. Uh, Brisbane ended up winning handballs by three, although they had 40 more possessions overall. Brisbane are typically a lower handball side. It wasn't for lack of trying, though. Um, obviously, Nick Hind was trying to do that on multiple occasions and didn't work out for him. And then you were talking with others on Twitter about a moment where Merritt could have chosen to block for Martin, but chose to run on hoping that Martin would be able to get the ball out to him uh, and give Essendon a chance at a scoring opportunity. Um, and that sort of typified the risks they were, they were trying to take. He could have blocked for him, but they would have been stuck in a bit of a difficult spot to get out of, even if he was successful in doing that. Yeah, you look at that. Uh, Merritt and Martin won in isolation. Brisbane had five players, I think, from memory, set up across halfback. So had uh, Martin or had Merritt blocked and Martin kicked the ball, he was likely just to kick it to an outnumber and Brisbane were going to intercept. Martin's a player who's who's typically pretty good at getting his hands above the tackle and getting the ball, ball forward. So I think given the situation, Zach made the right decision and and tried to, to run for the overlap and carry the ball where he could then get the ball over the back of of Brisbane zones. Uh, I think the other one that copped a lot of criticism for for what he did or, or didn't do was Nick Hind. But he was one that that really did try and take the game on in a game where we were, you know, continually kicking the ball back to, to Brisbane as we we're trying to, to get the ball out of our defensive 50. He was really the only one that, that tried to change the tempo for us. I mean, some others tried, um, you know, Credit to the likes of Redman and, and McGrath who had good games down there and and did try and, and give us a little bit of offensive impetus as well. But but Nick really I, I thought was the one that did try to break the tuck, uh, the shackles and get up the ground. He he just made mistakes. He fumbled. He he slipped in on a wet night or a greasy night. Uh, you know, players making mistakes, trying to do something positive and trying to take the game on is generally something that I'm okay with. Yeah. Well, look. Last time we played Brisbane before the previous week, uh, one of the reasons why we were successful, we were able to lock Lockie Neal out of the game. And uh, look, if they were trying to do something similar this week, it, it didn't work. So Neal had 34 disposals and eight inside 50s, which was the highest on the ground. So he was obviously much more effective this time around than he was back in 2022. Yeah, he had a really good game. There's no doubt about that. He had 11 from memory in the last quarter. So uh, you know that still means he's had 23 in in three quarters, so he's still going at a, a pretty good rate. But um, uh, he more importantly, he only had three clearances to three quarter time. So I think we did a reasonable job of of not necessarily restricting him getting the ball, but restricting his influence on on getting the ball. And you know we were still within three three goals at three quarter time. We were obviously ahead at, at halftime. It it looked like Setterfield up until three quarter time. Uh, had the job on on him at stoppages and, and clearances and, and did a reasonable job of of limiting the damage. I think it was then Caldwell who went to him in the last quarter as we just tried to to change things up a little bit. At, at least that's how it appeared. 
Uh, it was a pretty frantic game at times, so it was a little bit difficult to tell for certain. But um, yeah, ultimately he's a he's a class act, and and as the game went on, he got more and more involved and did more and more damage. Yeah. And our final point was to keep the Brisbane defenders accountable in one-on-one situations. And, uh, you know, I think we were definitely trying to do this at the start. It's been something that has worked fairly well, particularly with Langford forward. But I thought Brisbane's defenders were doing a really good job, uh, even when they were getting caught in those one-on-one situations at, at winning the defensive contest. So I think Lester really stood out to me a couple of times where he managed to stop Langford from from marking balls that previous weeks Langford's been able to mark in, in similar situations. So, you know, credit to Brisbane's one-on-one defenders that we got into that situation. They were more successful than our players were at winning the ball. Yeah, yeah, marked him in that one-on-one, didn't he, where you just felt that that was Langford bread and butter based on what he'd done in, in recent weeks. But, yeah, it's a bit hard to assess this one, really, given uh, we didn't go inside 50 all that often and and the ball sent 65% of the, the game in Brisbane's forward half. So, yeah, I, I don't think we can really get a, a proper read of that one, mate, given the way the game went. Yeah. I mean, that sort of leads on to what we're going to talk about now, which is the big question that, that's come out of the Brisbane game and really highlighted that with the amount of time the ball spent down in Brisbane's forward line is that why are we struggling at preventing opposition inside 50? So if you go through the last four weeks, which, which are matches we've lost against top sides, uh, Essendon's been down on inside 50s by 19 against Collingwood, 17 against Geelong, 18 against Port Adelaide, and then a whopping 31 against Brisbane. Brisbane actually had the highest inside 50 count uh, of any side this season in a match with, with 69. Uh, and then this has also been reflected in big disparities in the contested mark and intercept possession numbers. You know, I think we've done a, a fairly good job to hang around in games when those metrics are so opposed to each other that you know, you're having to rely on individual brilliance or a bit of luck to, to at least stay close in some of those situations. But as I said, I think all those metrics are linked. And I've, I've been giving a bit of thought about the reasons why and what it says about where we're at at the moment. I think the big thing for me is a part of it's coming down to how we want to defend and then rebound. Uh, Essendon are really trying hard to force sides as wide as possible when they're moving the ball. Um, This has worked so far this year because Essendon have been really good at denying opposition sides the corridor. So they're setting up so that if oppositions do try and go through the corridor, there's a good chance that we can win it back and generate our own inside 50. And we're probably leaning more towards protecting the corridor. So this means that teams are more often going up the wings and the flanks against us. And what that does is it it means they take longer to move the ball. And that then allows our defense time to set up. So if you consider last year, we were trying more of a a full ground press or trying to defend the whole width of the ground and teams were getting over the back and catching our defense one-on-one. So I think that explains why, even though teams are moving the ball fairly effectively, it's not having as much damage as it did last year. So ideally when a team, our opposition gets to within say 75 metres of goal, uh, we're happy to let them take the target in the pocket so they have a low percentage shot on goal um, or force them to take that long kick into the forward line that would allow the set now set up Essendon defence to take an intercept mark or some form of stoppage to reset the play. So a lot of clubs will be trying to have that full width of the ground defence and stop the ball from going inside their 50 and get it back earlier. But from what he's been talking about and the way the season has gone so far, it's my belief that Brad Scott's trying to build the defence from the back half first. Once they get that sorted, they can start adding more layers to it and roll that up the ground. Um, 
rather, and I said, rather than defending the full width, we're defending the most dangerous parts and relying on that to give our defenders time to get in good positions to repel opposition inside 50s. Yeah, I think that's right, mate. But just to add to that, I also think at the moment we have a contested ball problem as well. So we've won contested ball in each of our wins. We've won the inside 50 count in each of our wins, except against the Gold Coast where it was 57 apiece. So we so we broke even. We've lost contested ball in each of our losses and we've lost the inside 50 count in each in each of our losses. And, you know, that, that sounds simplistic, but not, by not winning the ball at the contest, we're not getting the ball inside 50 as often. You know, those two are going hand in hand, which then means the opposition are getting the ball inside 50 more often, which also means we're defending from further back. So we're, yes, building the defense from the back first, but we're also not giving ourselves the opportunity to get that that defensive setup up the ground because we're not getting the ball inside our own forward 50 often enough. Um, to go with the numbers that you shared around inside 50 differentials, we've, the last four games, our Contested ball differential has been minus 21, minus 11, minus 17, and minus 29 against Brisbane. So I don't think it's purely a case that we're just rolling back and and just purely trying to defend the back half of the ground out of default. I I know it was mentioned on first crack on Sunday that we're 18th for mid-zone turnovers over the last four weeks, and and that's true. So we've been the worst over the last four weeks of winning the ball back off the opposition in the the middle zone of the ground. So if you divide it into three, forward, uh, forward 50, back 50, and then and then the middle of the ground, where we've been the worst over the last four weeks. But I don't think that's game plan or system. I think that's a consequence of losing the contested ball, losing territory, and the ball ending up in our back 50 too often. We're not putting ourselves in a position to be able to win the ball back in the, in the middle of the ground because the opposition are winning at the contest and taking it forward. We were eighth in the AFL after round five for mid-zone turnovers, and and that included two games against teams in the top five. So it's not like we were just beating up on on lower-ranked sides. We had a bit of a blend in that part of the draw. So I just think we're making it harder to defend by not winning the contest and not taking territory ourselves. And and even uh, I should have pulled the numbers. I I looked at them and I, I didn't include them. But if you look at the our rate of inside 50 tackles compared to the number of inside 50s we're getting, you can see that there is a real intent to get that part of our game right in conjunction with the things that you've talked about and, and setting up that, that defensive structure with our back six. Yeah. And the things you just talked about have a flow on effect on how we're trying to exit 50, as you say, uh, more often than not in the last four games with having to exit from further back because the teams have been able to take that territory and get that deeper kick into their forward 50. Now, given how we set up, our ideal rebound 50 involves us moving the ball quickly through the corridor, which because of our efforts to control the corridor when the opposition has the ball, we should now have the players in place to be able to access that, particularly through through handball and overlap handball there. Now, as earlier on, we've probably been able to get away with that against some sides. But coming up against the better sides... They've also been a lot better at quickly switching from attack to defense mode to shut that run down. Not always, but enough that we can't rely consistently on this method of moving the ball. And then you add to that skill errors like missed handballs also don't help in being able to move the ball by our preferred method. And part of that also comes down to pressure from the opposition. So if you can't move the ball that way, what do you do? Well, you can play a short kick game to move the ball slowly, but as you can imagine, that gives the opposition time to set up their own defense and makes it difficult for us to get the ball into a good scoring position. Uh, You're also then relying on a high level of disposal efficiency to keep it out of the opposition's hands. 
And then the other option is to kick long to a contest and hope for either a contested mark, a ground ball win, or at the very least, a stoppage. And what's happening now is partly due to our personnel issues, a lot of these options are falling apart. So with players like Laverde, Ridley, and Kelly out the last few weeks, it's been much harder to win the ball in our defensive 50 in the first place. We're still contesting well, but we're not winning the same level of intercepts as we would with those players in the side. Secondly, particularly without... Peter Wright, and then the last few weeks, Harry Jones, we don't have players that can either reliably take a contested mark or create a 50-50 from that long kick option. The hope seems to have been that our ruck duo could have provided this, but they've really been inconsistent with that since the Melbourne game. What's then happening is the opposition could win the ball from either taking their own contested mark or winning the ground ball, as you say, from their contested possession dominance and sending it back inside their own 50 Now, we've done a fairly good job at not allowing a heap of scores from opposition inside 50s, but some of that fact comes down to because the ball is down in the opposition's front half so often, it's quite congested, making it difficult for the opposition to find clear targets. So, I mean, just sort of to wrap up from my end, unless Brad Scott's devised a new way of playing uh, defense from his three years of the AFL that's about to take the competition by storm. I don't think what we're seeing now is is going to be the one that's going to win a flag, but I think it is a starting point though and allows us to keep ourselves in winning positions whilst they work out who has what it takes in other areas of the ground. You mentioned forward 50 tackles. We've got a lot of potential small forward on our list and we, we want to see who's going to be in that makeup going forward. Uh, and it gives the players, you know, an opportunity to see that they are making improvements and that also helps keep up the motivation so they can continue to make those changes and build on what's been developed to hopefully create a premiership winning side. Yeah. And, and you use the, the word improvement there, mate. Let, let's have a look at our rate of improvement thus far this year at a base level. At, at the end of round nine last season, we'd played the teams that had ultimately finished in the, the top six in 2022 um, so we played each of those within the first uh, nine games of the season. As of round nine this year, we've played five of the top seven. With the, the cats were six going into into um, in into last round, and then dropped to seventh with the bulldogs going ahead of them. So we've we pretty much had the same com- difficulty of fixture this year as we did last year. Um, so this time last year at, at round nine, we were two wins, seven losses with a percentage of 74.5. We're currently four wins, five losses and a percentage of 102.7. Remember, you know, Shory talked about it when we had him on the show a few weeks ago, the importance of percentage as a, as a way of assessing your performance across, you know, a, a longer period of the season. So to keep that, you know, we, we, we had a hiding against Brisbane, but we've maintained a percentage over 100, and I think that's an indicator of um, of improved performance. Last year in the six games that we played against top sides, we were 0-6 and six with a percentage of 63%. This year we're 1-5, and five, so we, we had that win against Melbourne, uh, and we've got a percentage of 86.1. So our losses haven't been anywhere near the level that they were last year. And, and of course, we, we got the win on the board against the Ds, which we weren't able to do against the top six sides in the first nine weeks last year. In those games, we failed to score 100 points last year, and we conceded 100 points in three of them. In 2023, we've scored 100 points twice. And the only time we could, we've conceded 100 against those top seven sides or, or six of the top seven uh, was against um, Geelong where we also scored a hundred points ourselves. So 
you know, we, we've been scoring more, conceding less. You know, it's a, it's a pretty good indicator of, of improved performance, albeit against, you know, similarly ranked sides. And then we had an average losing margin of 39 points in those games last year compared to an average losing margin of 21 points this year, which obviously blew out thanks to the the loss against Brisbane. So, yeah, to, to round nine last season, we scored an average of 76 points a game. That's increased to 90 points this season and an increase of 13.7 in 2022, we conceded an average of 102 points a game. That's reduced by 14.6 points a game this season, so down to 87.7 points a game, which you know is still higher than we'd probably like it to be, but it's an improvement nonetheless. So at a very, very baseline number, mate, we're, we're roughly 28 points a side or 28 points a game better side this year than we were at round nine last year. Yeah, it's really pleasing to see those numbers. And, and again, it does provide some perspective from last year to this year. You know, I think there's a few people that are a bit down after after four losses and and particularly the nature of some of those losses. But as you say, when you when you look at it holistically, you do see the improvement. It's it's measurable there from a stats perspective. And I think we all see it from a, a vision perspective as well. And sort of building on that idea of improvement, let's have a look at what's been in the news this week. So David King went through some kicking stats on AFL 360 on Wednesday night. Um, one of those areas that was a constant source of frustration for Essendon supporters in 2022, but it, it does seem to be something we're actually doing quite well in 2023. Yeah, it was interesting. In in terms of defending kick-ins, we've conceded just the six goals from kick-ins this season, and we haven't conceded a score from kick-ins in the last three weeks nor did we back against the Giants in, what was that, round four, I think, uh, where we kicked the 22 behinds in the game. So we, we gave them plenty of opportunities to score from kick-ins and, and we didn't concede one. So, yeah, there, there was a lot of um, angst from fans, myself included, about our ability to defend kick-ins last season. And then that sort of flowed through after that St Kilda practice game where um, uh, fans were really frustrated that we were conceding that first kick short and wide, but it's really working for us. And and David King sort of showed that the teams that are, are getting sucked into kicking into that part of the ground are really struggling to, to A, score from kick-ins, but B, a, a lot more likely to turn the ball over and, and, and end up having a score put back against them. So, David King's data looked more at what happened from teams' own kick-ins rather than defending the opposition kick-in. And, and what he looked at was how teams are scoring from kick-ins, but also the scoring rate against them if they lose possession during the kick-in chain. So team takes a kick-in, do they score or do they turn it over and the opposition scores from that turnover? Melbourne are the number one ranked team in the competition this year at plus 21 across the season. So they've scored 21 more points from kick-ins over the course of the year than they've conceded when they've turned their kick-ins over to the opposition. So, you know, an example of of that one was would be, you know, Maynard on Anzac Day kicking it straight to, to us. And 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 I think Wiedemann wasn't a picked it up and kicked a goal. So that's a, a plus six uh, for us and a minus six for, for them. So, um, you know, Hawthorne are the worst. They're at minus 19.1. So they're giving the ball back to the opposition from quick from kick-ins on a pretty regular basis, and then they're getting repeat scores. So, you know, those old six-point plays or seven-point plays are happening. What was really interesting is the Bulldogs are number two in the AFL at plus one. So it drops down a fair bit. Uh, They're the only other team with a positive across the season. But we're actually fourth at, at minus two. So we're not doing a bad job despite all the pressure we've put ourselves under at 
at not giving the ball back to the opposition from kick-ins and allowing them to score all that frequently. And given we've had 68 kick-ins in the last four weeks and we've really struggled from for ball movement and contested marks, as you spoke about, we're holding up pretty well in that regard to be fourth in the competition. What was also interesting is that our opponent this week is 16th in the comp. They're minus 13.1 at, um, from their own kick-in. So they're giving the ball back quite regularly and the opposition are able to score from those chains. So that might be an opportunity we can exploit this week if we can win that that territory battle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, to be fair, you probably don't want to be giving the opportunity for kick-ins by just kicking straight and kicking for goals. So, you know, but if we if you go about that and, and have those missed kicks, then, as you, as you sort of say, there's an opportunity to be exploited there. And just going back to what you said about Melbourne being the best side at plus 21, they're only plus 12 against us in our match. So we did better than most other teams have done against the best kicking inside in the competition. Now, some good news in the contract front. We Ben Hobbs has been announced to have a further two-year deal. Um, really pleasing to get that contract done early in the season and allows him to continue the growth he's been exhibiting. I think he had a, a reasonably good game against Brisbane and He's going to have a bit more responsibility this week with, with Setterfield out as well. Yeah, it's good news to lock him away. I, I think fans just encourage you all to take a little bit of a breath when sort of negative news or or there was a story about Massimo D'Ambrosio today about other clubs interested in him. Other clubs are always interested in out-of-contract players that are good, and Ben Hobbs is a good young player. Massimo's a good young player. It's not something that we need to, to worry or panic about. These things just take time, and, and they'll – um, tick them off as the season goes on, and, and Ben Hobbs is a good example of that. And you know, it's only round nine, so for him to sign on now is a is a really good story. He's going to be a really good uh, player for us, and I'm excited to to see what he can do for us this week with with more responsibility. Uh, I just want to add one thing to to his game that I think he can can improve, and and those who know us know that whenever we're critical, it's normally a view of um, of construction, constructive criticism rather than, than negativity. Uh, there was just some poor, poor body language from him on the weekend on, on Saturday night and some, some poor attitude towards teammates when he didn't get delivery he would have liked. Uh, there was one where we saw uh, relatively earlier in the game where Zach Merritt pretty much grabbed him by the collar and, and told him to go and sit up. And then there was one in the last quarter where he just sort of stayed down on his knees and he threw his arms out, kind of, you know, had a little bit of a, a tantrum. They're, they're small things and he's got a big future and I'm sure it's part of his evolution. And maybe that was something that Brad Scott had seen in his game and, and why he spent a couple of extra weeks in the in the VFL. Uh, but, you know, he, he's certainly going to be the big beneficiary at the moment of, of some of these injuries in the short term. And, uh, yeah, I, as I said, I'm really looking forward to to watching him make the most of his opportunities. Yeah, absolutely. And as he sort of pointed out, I think it's really pleasing to see Merritt keeping him focused and, and displaying that leadership he needs to do as captain um, and making sure that Hobbs is doing what he needs to do for the team. Uh, it's one of those things where if you let a player establish bad habits early, it can be really difficult to break them out of. So hopefully he learns quickly about what the expected behaviours are and then he can be effective for the side both offensively and defensively in the years to come. The other good news this week came in the form that Peter Wright and Elijah Sardis are both ahead of schedule in their injury recovery, both back before the bye. And then it does seem like Nick's Cox is also close to resuming, hopefully in the VFL in the next couple of weeks. So, you know, with Keep, keep seemingly be getting injury upon injury, but it also does seem like we, we do having some good luck, particularly in terms of the recovering players. Yeah, I think the the cycle of news this week went Sardis and Cox are back to training and Peter Wright's ahead of schedule. And then 
by the way, someone stepped on Setterfield's foot and he's going to be out for five or six weeks. So, um, yeah, one step forward, two steps back. But, uh, yeah, I think it's really exciting to think that we might see Peter Wright and Sam Wiedemann get to play eight or nine games together this season. I think a week ago we we didn't think they'd get any, if many. So, uh, yeah, so that that's definitely good news. And, yeah, if we can get five or six senior games into Sardis or Cox in the or Ann Cox in the back half of this season, I think, you know, that's a bonus. We we also probably weren't sure we were going to get when we were looking at it a couple of um, weeks ago. So I think both, well, all three of them are really important parts of our future going forward. So, yeah, I, I think it's, um yeah, really good news that they're back on track and, and we might get to see them playing footy soon. Yeah, absolutely. Well, look, let's turn our attention to the Dreamtime game and let's, let's take a real good look at where Richmond are at. So, Looking back at 2022, Richmond finished in seventh place. They had 13 wins, eight losses, and a draw. And then they only just narrowly lost an elimination final away to the Lions uh, by two points after they led by the majority of the game. And then a Joe Danaher goal in the last couple of minutes saw the Lions get ahead at at the end of the game. Uh, The season, the Tigers have started much poorer than, than most people expected. They're currently sitting at three wins, five losses, and a draw to be 13th on the ladder. After a draw with Carlton and win over Adelaide, which probably looks a lot better than it, it did at the time, uh, they lost five matches in a row to, to Collingwood, the Bulldogs, Sydney, Melbourne, and the Suns before a big win over West Coast and then a good win over a somewhat depleted Geelong. See them head into dream time on a two-match winning streak. So some similarities in how they performed last year. They do seem to be playing a fairly similar style. If you look at their kick-to-handball ratio, it's 1.57, which is similar to last year. So they're trying to move the ball very similar to past years. But what has stood out really is they've had a lot more difficulty putting a score on the board. So they're averaging 79 points a game, which is ranked 14th in the comp, as opposed to 98 last year. And they were actually ranked one in terms of the most attacking side last year. Uh, they had scored 100, over 100 points in their last two games, however, so they may be getting some of that back. Although again, playing West Coast and a potentially depleted Geelong there could be factors in that. Uh, their defence remains at a similar level to last year. They're conceding 79 points a game this year compared to 81 last year. So the drop-off really seems to be about their attack side. And a part of that can really be put down to the absence of Tom Lynch. Um, he scored three and a half ga- goals a game last year. Um, and even the games he played this year was down a full goal on that average. And then even a player like Shai Bolton is down half a goal a game this year. So they're Attacking side of the game is not working as well as it has in past years. Even with a couple additions to their midfield mix, which we'll get into a bit later, there's actually been a considerable drop in their clearance numbers. Although if you reflect on Richmond's premiership years, clearance wasn't necessarily a strong point there and it's not a stat they need to win in order to be successful. Uh, So last year they were fifth for centre clearance, so they're averaging one more per game than their opponents, but they've actually dropped a last in that metric this year. They average more than three centre clearances conceded to their opponents per game. Um, And the surprising thing to note is that they've actually done worse at stoppage clearance in wins than in losses this year. In wins, they are minus six in stoppage, whilst in losses, they are just ahead of of break-even. So in some ways, they actually prefer to lose the stoppage and try and get the ball back either on that first possession out of stoppage or through an intercept as as teams enter the forward line and, and send it back their way. But even with Intercept, they're down on last year. So last year, they ranked fourth with plus 2.8 a game, whereas this year, they're going at minus 1.22. Even in their wins, their overall average from last year is is they're lower than their overall average than last year. So they're only going at plus one in wins. 
Yeah, statistically, the thing that stands out to me, uh, not so much comparing this year to last, but but just looking at this year is comparing their wins to their losses. And and that's that they're, they're taking 93 marks a game in their wins and only 82 in a game in their losses. So uh, their, their possession retention uh, in their wins versus their losses is quite stark to me. They turn the ball over eight more times in their losses than in their wins. They're given the opposition seven extra intercepts when they lose than than when they win and an opposition tackle numbers are only slightly more in their losses so it, it's pretty negligible so it's not like they're it's tackles from the opposition that are forcing those turnovers it's it's happening more so through pressure acts and, and one percenters so it's it's not so much what richmond do or don't do in their regard there's not a lot of drop off in their game it's won a game less in their losses than in their wins it's more so what the opposition do to them and, and when they really hunt and pressure them richmond give the ball back more often and and that reduces their forward 50 entries and therefore their marks inside 50 so yeah you you've talked that there's you know little change statistically this year to last but uh what's changed uh, overall on their list you, you mentioned there's been some big midfield changes yeah so i think obviously people know that they've spent a lot of draft capital to get in uh tim taranto and Jacob Hopper, so they gave up uh, two 2022 first rounds, as well as a second from last year, and then their first pick from this year. So really suggest they're going for another push while players like Rewalt and Cochin and, and Grimes and Martin are still around. And if you look at those two players, Taranto is, is having a career best year stats-wise. He's averaging over 30 disposals, seven tackles, and 6.6 clearances per game, Or although he, who must not be named, um, has been doing a fair bit of questioning about his effectiveness in the media. Uh, I think you, when you're pulling that sort of numbers, you're still quite a valuable player for, for them there. Uh, Hopper has been serviceable. He's uh, averaging 22 disposals, four tackles and, and 4.8 clearances, but he's obviously out this week. So, you know, that's a bit of depth issues for them in their midfield. Uh, if you look at who went out, uh, a few premiership Tigers like Caddy, Edwards and Lambert retired. Uh, last season, and then Arts, Collier, Dawkins, Parker, and Stack were delisted. And then on the eve of the season, uh, Castagna decided to retire. Um, of those players, uh, Edwards played 22 games last year and Castagna 16, whilst the rest played seven or less. So I think really Edwards is probably the only big loss from from that group, uh, considering what the rest put out last year. Yeah, I feel like Edwards has Buddy Franklin-style numbers against Essendon as well. So he's a big loss to them overall, but uh, an even bigger loss against Essendon. I think he, he's played some of his best games for against us. Yeah, and I guess one of those best games ended up being the final game for Essendon season last year where uh, Richmond 21-15-141 defeated Essendon 11-9-75. It was actually a fairly easy first half. Essendon only trailed by three goals at half time, but 11 goal to four second half, put the cherry on top of a disappointing 2022 for the Bombers. Um, notable mainly for Ben Rutten's last match, uh, as well as Michael Hurley providing the only highlight with a goal in his final game before retirement. Um, interesting to note that Richmond's top three goal kickers in that match, uh, Lynch, who kicked five, and Cumberland and Edwards, who both kicked three, won't feature. And then if you look at the Essendon side, Essendon's top goal kicker in Peter Wright, um, who kicked four, won't play. And then the, our next highest was D'Ambrosio with two and there's no guarantee that he'll play based on selection. So just a li- little interesting nugget there. Yeah, I think we'll all remember that for uh, Michael Hurley's final goal and and 
how respectful Richmond were and how they handled that situation as well, mate. So, yeah, I've erased the rest of the game from my memory, but I'll, I'll remember that one for a long time. Yeah, I think a lot of Essendon players will treasure that given what Hurley went through just to get to that moment. Well, look, let's focus on the future and and look at selection for Saturday night's game. And we'll start with Richmond. So big in for Richmond with their their captain and Ruckman Nankervis coming back in. They've also brought in Thompson Dow. Uh, out go Ben Miller. Uh, Jacob Hopper, as we said earlier, is injured. And then Judson Clark was the sub last week and he's on the emergency list. Uh, joining him on that list is Miller, Sonsi, and Banks. And yeah, as I mentioned, Nankervis is going to be really important for them in terms of their their clearance work, not only uh, from a rucking sense, but he's going to drive a lot of that himself. So he'll play a big part in potentially making up from what some of what they've lost with Hopper going out. Yeah, he certainly will. He, he's, you know, he's he's not your typical uh, jump and, and jump over the top of the opposition ruckman. He he does get his hands dirty on the ground and gives them a lot of size and bulk around stoppages. Uh, so, yeah, big in for him. But Samson Ryan has been playing some really good footy, uh, taking the the lead in the ruck. And, uh, you know, they're obviously a better team with Nankervis back, but... Um, uh, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see. I, I thought he gave them a lot of extra sort of run and, and aerial competitiveness last week against the Cats. So, uh, you know, two Ruckman against two Ruckman now is going to make for an interesting contest. And then Thompson Dow's a, a young, uh, sort of tall, big-bodied midfielder. So he comes into, you know, with um, with Jacob Hopper coming out sort of like for like in terms of size and style, not, not necessarily quality. Yeah. Well, look, speaking of quality, Essendon's, uh, one in is certainly that with Jordan Ridley coming back from his concussion. Uh, Essendon outs, as you mentioned earlier, Setterfield with the broken foot. And then D'Ambrosio has also gone out. Uh, emergencies for Essendon are Snelling, Brian, Montgomery, and D'Ambrosio. Uh, Davey was the starting sub last week, but he's been moved into the, the 22, although he was in a similar position last week and then got switched to the sub just before the game. Um a game with three small forwards already in the side. I don't see Snelling being the sub, although given the midfield issues, maybe they'll put him there to potentially break glass in case of emergency play as a, a midfielder. Um, I expect it to be D'Ambrosio as sub again to fill that defensive role or also flexible to go on the wing and, and even forward if he needs to. Um, the thing I'm really pleased about is that Baldwin's been retained. Um, I want to see him get a patch of games. I think he showed signs that he could be a, a good defender. I think, People, you know, think he's a bit short, but you have to remember he's the same uh, height as Michael Hurley was, and, and Hurley managed to carve out a pretty good career as a defender against a lot taller opponents. And not to say that Baldwin's anywhere near, even where Hurley was at the same age, but you know, you don't have to be the same height as a, as a key forward to to be an effective defender on them. And I think he's he's got some less challenging opponents. You know, it's not quite the same quality of, of Danaher and Hipwood. This week, obviously, Rewalt, you imagine Zerk Thatcher goes to him uh, and then he's got some less experienced opponents who obviously could still get on top of him, but not, again, not the same quality as a player like Hipwood. And then over the next couple of weeks, hopefully he's able to get some confidence and form so that when we do come up against Carlton and, you know, expect that he potentially plays on a player like Harry Mackay, um, given Laverde's unlikely to be back by that stage, it gives us, you know, a player that, that's built confidence that can go up against someone of that quality. Yeah, I, I guess this week he he only has to play on someone like uh, Dusty Martin or, or, or that type, hey? Um, but, yeah, uh, I think what it does do, 
made it with him in the side, and, and I thought he showed some really good signs last week. He, he made some mistakes, but it, it was his first game in the AFL as a key defender, so we forgive him for that. Is it helps to get us back to that back six structure or closer to the structure that we had at the start of the season that held us in good stead? So Kelly's obviously still missing, but but Baldwin is similar to Laverde in terms of height and size and, and role. And he's probably got some um, bulk and, and weight on, on Laverde. So uh, with Ridley back where, you know, where, where one puzzle piece closer to having that same structure, just waiting for, for Jake Kelly to come back from his concussion next week. Yeah. Well, look, let's look at Richmond's last game and it was quite a big win for them defeating Geelong. So 16, six, 102. Uh, defeating Geelong 11-12-78. It was a, a really weird match when you just look at it from a stats perspective. So most were even or in favour of Geelong, including clearance and contested possession. I think really the difference came down to Richmond's efficiency in front of goal, and that was really epitomised by the opening quarter where they kicked six goals straights to Geelong's two goals seven. And as I highlighted earlier, Geelong did have some significant outs, including Patrick Dangerfield, who obviously tore it up against Essendon a few weeks previously. But Dustin Martin probably played his most influential game of the year, kicked four goals. And then Trent Conscience surprised a lot of people by kicking three. Uh, Taranto, as he's done all year for Richmond, had the highest disposals with 28 and also a game-high 12 tackles, whilst Jaden Short also had a really strong game with 26 disposals and 714 metres gained, which was the highest on the ground. Yeah, it was a bit of a, a weird game. Richmond made much more of their chances in front of goal than Geelong did. I think they were equal on scoring shots in the end. You know, we we said in our preview ahead of the uh, our game against Geelong that that they were reliant on their their star power this year more more so than last year, and you know they had a number of their stars missing. Dangerfield, who uh, you know again I've said this before, is, is probably in almost career best form, so he he wasn't there. You take him out, and and then there was four or five of his premiership teammates missing as as well, and then you know some of the guys like. You know Henry and and um, and Bowers and the like, who would be the next in line, weren't there either. So you know they had sort of nine or ten guys that that would be in their top twenty five or twenty six players missing. And uh, you know I know Richmond had some players out too, but but I think that's just where Geelong are at at the moment. That they're they're much more reliant on their best players than they have been in the past. Uh, Richmond scored six of their sixteen goals from coast to coast. Change that that. Two of those came from stoppages in their back 50, three of them from turnovers or intercepts, and, and one of them from a kick-in. They are number two in the AFL at getting the ball from uh, – for, or getting the ball inside 50 from a defensive 50 chain, and uh, they haven't always been able to, to capitalise it on it. So, you know, a, few, a couple of weeks ago against uh, the Bulldogs, they lost a close game and they scored one goal six from those defensive chains. Against Geelong, they kicked six goals one. So um, – so, yeah, sorry, one goal six, that was against Gold Coast a couple of weeks ago, um, and then six goals one against Geelong. So they, uh, there's a bit of talk about it being Richmond of old and a bit of Tigers of old coming back. I'm not sure that's the case. I think, you know, they're, they're right on their season average for inside 50s for centre clearances. They lost stoppages by 11 and contested possession by 19, which, you know, not necessarily unusual for them to lose those metrics, but, but it was by quite a lot. They did retain the ball better. They they took nearly twenty more marks than their season average against an opposition that that tackled ten times less than Richmond opponents have throughout the course of the season. And they had eight fewer one percenters than than um, normally has happened against Richmond throughout the year. So I, I just think they made more of their chances against a team that was undermanned uh, and and didn't put the pressure 
on Richmond that Richmond have experienced in other games this year, and, and that was enough to enable Richmond to, to be more accurate in front of goal. Yeah, well, you, you sort of mentioned that the Tigers of old and, and being a bit, you know, sceptical of whether they're back. Well, if Tigers of old are ever going to show up, it's probably going to be uh, on Saturday night uh, in the Dreamtime match where they've, they've had a decade-long stranglehold on it. So how do we go about breaking that uh, streak there? Yeah, I think so much of this, mate, is just about getting back to the basics of contested ball and, and pressure levels. If we can get those two right, then then we give ourselves the best chance, which which sounds obvious. But Geelong allowed Richmond to go at to, – yeah, to give you an example, Geelong allowed Richmond to go at 76% by foot in the first quarter last week and Richmond kicked six goals straight. So they were able to retain the ball, use it really well, and, and, and they did damage on the scoreboard. In the second quarter – Geelong restricted that kicking efficiency to 60% and Richmond scored two goals, three. So, uh, uh, you know, there was a, a really good demonstration in just two quarters of footy last week where if you allow Richmond to to move the ball without a lot of pressure, they'll hurt you on the scoreboard. If you can put that pressure on, you can force them into into positions of the ground to, to take shots from wet that reduces their likelihood of, of kicking a goal. So uh, that's, you know, got to be a big focus for the, for us this week. They go inside 50, the fifth most in the competition, but they're ranked 16th for scoring once they get it in there. They scored just 44% of the time. They go inside 50, and, and you mentioned it earlier on that they're ranked 14th for score or points scored overall. So I, I think a lot of that just comes back to being able to pressure their ball movement and force them into into um, into dump, ki- dump kicks. And, you know, this is a Richmond forward line, as you mentioned, that doesn't have Lynch at the moment. They haven't brought Cumberland back, which surprised me a little bit. I, I I know he's been in and out of games, but he played well against us last year. He's had a couple of big games this year and and he can be dangerous. I, I thought he might have come back. And then, you know, Shane Edwards, we've already touched on, who's a player who's tormented us for a decade and, and he's now retired. So different looking Richmond forward line. And, and I think what that does do is it gives us a chance to intercept because of the way they like to, to move the ball and, uh, if we can force them into those hack kicks, uh, where and you know where they uh, Richmond are happy to do it, and I think we're happy to allow it because it allows us to set up Ridley back into the side, and and it allows us to to defend and 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 intercept, and I think that gives us an advantage one in in winning the ball back, but also it allows us to score. Um, you know, we scored nineteen points a game from intercepts in our defensive fifty, and and even last week for everything that went wrong. Uh, you know, 15 of our 45 points still came from chains that started by winning the ball back off Brisbane in our back line. So I think this is a game where where Richmond's MO actually works in our favour, that win the ball at the contest, hack it forward, try and take territory. As long as we've got enough pressure at the source to make sure that that happens and it's not Taranto and the like getting the ball out of space and setting up their really good users then I think we give ourselves a, a really good opportunity to be able to intercept and score the other way. But uh, that comes back to, to pressure. And I think we've got that in us. If you look at the average pressure acts of, of players in the two teams combined, 10 of the 16 across the, the season are Essendon players. So, uh, you know, our pressure levels when we've been playing our best footy are, are, are much higher than than what we typically see from from Richmond players across the season. And, you know, that does include some players for both clubs that that aren't playing this week. But I think as a rule, our capacity to put pressure on the opposition is higher than Richmond's. Yeah. Well, a couple of those players that we would be in that that top 16 are, are Parrish and Setterfield, and neither of those players are going to be there. So 
how do we give ourselves the best opportunity at the contest where you've identified that if we are able to do that, we, we should be able to be successful? Yeah, we had a pretty even spread last week and, and you mentioned our, our stoppage clearance, you know, numbers weren't too bad, all things considered. So uh, Caldwell had 15 centre bounce attendances, Shield 14, Merritt and Setterfield 13 and Stringer 8. There were none from Hobbs and Perkins. Yeah, a little bit's changed for them too. So Jacob Hopper is out injured, as you as you mentioned earlier. He's been, you know, one of their prime midfielders along with Taranto. And Dustin Martin hasn't seen all that much midfield time this season. It might be famous last words and, and we'll see him roll back the clock. But I think he's likely to spend most of the game forward and, and that's been what he's doing, been doing for most of the year. He he averages about three and a half centre bounces a game. So they're not the big-bodied monsters in there that we can't compete with, even without Parrish and Setterfield there. Taranto's their number one contested ball winner. He's he's their biggest body. He's 188 centimetres and 87 kilos. But then Shea Bolton is second for contested ball at 175 and, and 77 kilos. Hopper's next. He's not there. Then it's Nan Curvis, who, who's obviously a ruckman. Dusty's fifth, but as I said, I think he'll play forward. And then it's down to Prestia at 175 centimetres. Uh, you know, Thompson Dow comes in. He gives them a bit of size. He's 184 centimetres, but still relatively lightly framed. And then Jaden Short will will play through the midfielder. He's sort of their outside distributor. He's 178 centimetres. So it's not a, a massively built midfield. There's some really, really good players in there, but I don't think we need to be intimidated or, or too concerned overall about size. I, I think they'll run with Taranto, uh, Prestia, Bolton and Short as their main four with Dow giving some relief as their fifth midfielder and then Dusty, you know, once or twice a quarter. So I think we have just have to match them and beat them one-on-one. I think we we run with a similar sort of structure to, to what they're likely to do. We are going to be asking a lot of our young players this week and, you know, that's the reality of the game this week. But I also think that's what 2023 is all about, exposing these young guys to to some big opportunities and, and on a big stage on, on Saturday night is a great opportunity for Hobson and Caldwell to do that. So I think our, our main mids for the game need to be Caldwell, Hobbs, Sheil and Merritt. I think they need to be our main four size-wise. We match up okay. Um, and then we get contributions from Perkins and Stringer. I think we send Caldwell just to compete with Taranto head-to-head, not not in the tag, but it's, you know, go and win your own footy. If you can win it, he's not. Uh, but make sure if he's... if if he's not, if he being Caldwell's not able to win it first, that that we're not allowing called uh, Taranto, sorry, to get his hands free and then link up with Prestia and Bolton and Short and these guys. We we want Taranto if he's going to win it to be using those hack kicks forward under pressure uh, from as many of them as possible. Yeah, well, you mentioned Stringer, and you, you're just looking for small contributions for him with Setterfield out. You're not tempted to play him full time in the midfield. I think we need to see how the game plays out. I. I would definitely use him as a centre bounce midfielder frequently, but then release him forward. I think with Hobbs, the one that you know might start, in, or or I would start in the forward line and and then take his spot in the midfield post centre clearance. We know Stringer does his best work as a mid in and around that centre bounce where there's space and he can be explosive. And I think Hobbs does his best work at stoppages where it's a bit of a scrap. The ball's on the ground. It doesn't need to be explosive. So, uh, yeah, I think stoppages and contests around the ground suit him better. So I think it gives us a little bit of the best of both worlds where we get that dynamic and power explosion of Stringer at centre clearances. And then Hobbs's, you know scrappiness and, and ability to get his hands dirty on at ground level around stoppages. So, yeah, but I, I think ultimately I see... 
there being a lot more value in Jake Stringer playing forward this week. And um, and the reason for that, mate, is that Noah Bolter is the number two player in the AFL in intercept marks, but he's also the number one player for losing one-on-one contests, which is quite a contrast. So if you give him the opportunity to play as a spare man, intercept, defender, he's going to eat us up. He's going to take intercept mark and then he's going to get the ball out to their running players and, and they're going to hurt us the other way. It's it's a big part of the reason that, that Richmond have been so good this year at moving the ball from their back 50 into their forward 50. And it's because Noah Bolter has been really good at intercept marking. But when you get him in a one-on-one contest, he loses a lot of us, a lot of those or, or a proportionate number of those compared to uh, other players playing his position. And like us, Richmond aren't huge down back. Grimes and uh, is, I think, 193 centimetres. Broad's 192 as, as their, their other two sort of taller defenders. Uh, Vlosten, you know, is, is a similar size. He's not huge either. So they don't have a lot of height down there. And, and I think what Stringer forward does is it, is it ensures that Bolter has to play on one of either Stringer, Phillips, or Draper when when they're not in the ruck. And, and I'm assuming that Grimes will take Wiedemann and, and Broad will probably go to Langford. So it puts Bolter in in one-on-ones more often if Stringer's there where he's vulnerable. And, and then that also has the impact of reducing his likelihood to be able to go and intercept and then and win the ball back and, and give it to their running players. Yeah, I guess you, you look back at the role Stringer played uh, against Melbourne when when Stephen May was so occupied with him and, and couldn't you know make best use of his his intercepting strengths. If we get something similar to that this week, then again will be a good chance of success. Uh, anything else you want to look for? Yeah, just Rioli and Baker are really dangerous across halfback. We will typically try and keep our six forwards in in place and try and make the ground big. We talked about that before. Uh, Rioli's got a lot of pace as you know, anyone with the Rioli surname does. So uh, he's really dangerous that way. And Baker can really hurt you, you know, with um, with carry, but also by foot. So I wouldn't mind sending Jai Menzi to Baker this week just to give um, Jai, just to simplify his game a little bit. I, I think he's, he looks like he's a player who's trying to do a bit too much yes, uh, at the moment. And he's, he's still fighting his way. And, and I think, just giving him a bit of a role might simplify the game a little bit. Baker will take him to the up and down and take him to some some different areas. And I think if he can put the clamps on on him a little bit, um, you know, he'll be able to compete well one-on-one in the air with him and, and those kind of things. So I think it just gives um, Jai, you know, something different to, to worry about and, and just make the game a little bit more simple for him as he's finding his feet in um yeah, in the game, and and that allows you know hopefully Waller and and um and Davy to be a bit more dangerous and play a little bit closer to goal. Yeah, well, lots to ponder there, and I'm going to finish off with a bit more of a personal final thought this week than usual. Uh, so look, I've been with my Richmond supporting partner and the mother of my children, Mary, for over six years now, and in those six years, I've never experienced an Essendon victory over Richmond. So if we do win. Uh, how much am I allowed to gloat without her breaking up with me over it? Look, Matt, I, I certainly don't want to give you relationship advice and be the reason for um, for a failure, but my commitment to you is I, before I leave for the G on Saturday night, I'll put a spare doona and pillow on the couch. So if you need somewhere to stay, you're uh, you're welcome over any time. Well, I might have to take advantage of that if we do win. It's been a long time coming and I think I've, I've earned a bit of a gloat session if we do so. Look, that's going to wrap us up for this evening. Before we go, uh, just uh, there's 
we've organized a little bit of a, a casual meetup of of Don's fans through through Twitter and through our Patreon. Um, it's going to be at the Founders Bar and the Shane Warne stand from 5.30. Um, so, look, if you pre-game, if you're looking for something to do, uh, come along and have a couple of pre-game nerf settlers. Uh, come and say hi. Um, I'll, I'll definitely be there. I think you're a bit of a, a maybe at this stage, but um, I'd really love to meet as many of our listeners as we can. The, your ongoing support is, is what keeps this show going. And, yeah, just to look you in the eye and, and say thanks to that um, would be really good. So if you're in the area and looking for something to do, uh, swing on by. Yeah, good on you for organising that, mate. I'll do my best to get there. Just uh, got some family commitments that uh, might uh, mean I don't get there till a little bit closer to game time, but I'll see how I go. But, yeah, uh, obviously send my regards to everyone who does pop along and, uh, yeah, that should be good fun. But, uh, yeah, let's hope the the boys can put in a, a big performance on Saturday night, give us plenty to cheer about, and, and hopefully when we uh, get around to doing our next episode next Thursday, we've got a lot more positive things to talk about. Yeah, fingers crossed getting over talking about these losses. Other than that, guys, thanks, everyone, and go Dons.